Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4. First, however, let us pray. Gracious God, you are the author of all life. As we encounter your word this day, come to us with comfort where we need to be comforted, and come to us with challenge where we need to be challenged. Open our ears to hear what you are saying, and open our hearts to receive it. Amen. In the beginning, God created heavens, the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning. The second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on the earth that bear fruit with seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, 
and let birds fly above the earth, across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, and every kind with which the, the waters swarm, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind. And everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, I want to go on record right now as saying this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. 
It tells me where the earth and everything in it came from, which is to say it tells me where I came from. It tells me of a wildly creative God who can bring forth tremendous beauty from abject chaos. It tells me that light will always lead our way and that darkness, too, is holy and essential and ought never be overlooked. It tells me that this world is old and big and forged in love. It is one of the most evocative and affirming and generative accounts that you will find anywhere. It holds the ultimate primacy of place in our Bible and in our tradition because it is the ultimate story of life. As those who follow a sovereign God and a saving Christ and a sustaining spirit, it is one of our most definitive texts. So how is it also one of our most divisive? To be fair, it's likely not particularly divisive within the tradition of this church or other mainline Protestants, but it is remarkably divisive in the broader scope of Christianity, which is why this is an appropriate place to begin our sermon series, Do I Really Have to Believe That? We're beginning today with the idea of creationism. At its broadest point, a creationist is anyone who believes that God is the cause, the impetus, the beginning of all life. In this regard, I am a creationist. But at its most narrow and often most vocal point, a creationist is someone who adheres to a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, disregards the science of evolution and the study of geology and archaeology, and believes that God brought the earth and all the rest into being in seven distinct days. We'll call this literal creationism. That's the type of creationism we're thinking about today because that is the creationism that claims to have a monopoly on taking scripture seriously. Which means that is the creationism that causes folks to wonder, do I really have to believe that? Do I really have to believe that creation happened within a week if I am to be considered faithful? The short answer is no, but a longer and more nuanced answer may be worthy of our consideration. Historically, literal creationism and biblical fundamentalism are inextricably intertwined. Fundamentalism really begins in reaction to Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution. Prior to that, the Bible was generally assumed to be a book of accurate history and science, and defending it was as easy as pointing to a verse to prove your point. The ideas of common descent and natural selection and an earth billions of years old threw religion a serious curveball, and fundamentalism was born. Fundamentalists' greatest fear was that if Darwin was right, well, then the Bible was wrong, and so it dug in its heels on the literal truth and the complete inerrancy of Scripture. This created a stark polarization when most of the scientific and academic world sided with Darwin. 
The Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 was perhaps the most public debate and it further deepened the divide between modern science and biblical fundamentalism. Both sides would claim a philosophical victory from the trial and the root of its controversy has never really faded away. Now it wasn't long after Darwin that archaeologists in the Middle East discovered more and more about the ancient past. Among the many things learned, they found evidence of origin stories from other ancient nations, not just the Israelites that the Bible presents. And it turns out that these stories of other nations, they were astonishingly similar to the stories found in Genesis, including creation and humans and a great flood that drowns everyone. But the real kicker wasn't just that the stories were similar, it's that they were substantially older than the Bible, which all of a sudden made the Bible seem significantly less unique, less filled with classified information you couldn't find elsewhere, which meant it was potentially less important, maybe even less necessary. And then to make matters even worse, German biblical scholars, based upon careful analysis of the text's logical inconsistencies and differing linguistic markers, they started suggesting that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, probably weren't all written by Moses, even though the text itself claims that. Instead, they determined it was likely written long after Moses, which would mean these books were not eyewitness accounts, but stories told much later, subject to interpretation and agenda and bias of the author or authors. Similar to Darwin's theory of evolution, the theory of the evolution of the Pentateuch was almost universally convincing to scholars of the time, which was, which was perceived to be a third strike against the Bible's authority. And when these ideas spread out from the academy and into European and American churches, well, fundamentalist Christians panicked. They were afraid this would be what would finally cause churchgoers across the land to lose their faith. So, once again, as they had against each perceived threat, fundamentalists doubled down on a literal and inerrant reading of Scripture. And the more so-called threats that have piled up over time, the more fervently they have defended their theological point of view and continue to do so. Fundamentalism lays full claim to the Bible and insists that any step away from its system of belief is a step away from Scripture. Now the problem with all of this, at least as I see it, is that this fundamentalist expression of Christianity makes faith an argument to be one rather than a way of life to be lived. This expression of Christianity has found the world so threatening, it has missed the glory and the delight the world God created contains. And this expression of Christianity is so desperate to understand God rightly 
It's shrunk God down into something small enough for the human mind to comprehend. Rachel Held Evans, who grew up within a fundamentalist Christian tradition herself before finding her way out as a young adult, she puts it this way. She says, the problem with fundamentalism is that it can't adapt to change. When you count each one of your beliefs as essential, change is never an option. And when change is never an option, you have to hope that the world stays exactly as it is, so as not to mess with your view of it. I think this is why some preachers look so frantic and angry, she says. For fundamentalists, Christianity sits perpetually on the precipice of doom, one scientific discovery or cultural shift or difficult theological question away from extinction. They are so fearful of losing their grip on faith, she says. They squeeze the life right out of it. So think with me about something. How many times in the Bible is there a moment, is there a story, when someone realizes, I was wrong, I've learned something new, my mind has been changed, there's more than one way to understand this. If you read the Bible, there's at least as many stories with this theme as there are without it. You know, today, liturgically speaking, is Baptism of the Lord Sunday. And on Baptism of the Lord Sunday, John the Baptist is always the preacher. John, who comes out of the wilderness with a mighty short sermon before Jesus goes down into the waters. Repent, he says. That's the first sermon preached in three of the four Gospels. Repent. And to repent, at its most basic and direct level, means to change, to turn around, to find another way. That is a sign of the faith that Jesus brings us, a faith that is healthy and living and dynamic That sort of faith has the capacity to change, to consider new ways of being and new means of understanding and new expressions of loving. I think I understand something of the appeal of fundamentalism, though. I think I do. Because the world is big and complex and constantly changing. So I can relate to the desire for answers, for clarity, for certainty, for something, anything to just hold steady. Fundamentalism knows what it is to be afraid, and it knows how to offer security. Hold tight, fundamentalism says. No matter how rocky the ride, hold tight, and it will be okay. My friend Jessica, she's also a preacher. She lives in the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Washington, D.C. Every day, she and her two-year-old son walk half a mile to daycare, 
and they always pause to look at the Capitol building along the way. Her son loves it so much that on the days she forgets, he reminds her. But this past Wednesday, my friend and her husband watched a rally devolve into a riot, and they decided to drive together to retrieve their son. As expected, when they started home in the car, he asked to go and see the Capitol. My friend says it was difficult to explain to a young child why they couldn't go that day. She found herself saying things like, there are people there who are very angry, and they are being mean. They are breaking things. They are doing things they aren't supposed to do. So it is not safe for us to go. And her son, in the way that toddlers do, he summarized succinctly. They are bad people, he said. No people are bad people, Jessica said. They are just making bad choices. But once those words came out of her mouth, she found herself asking, is that really true? Are there no bad people? Can I still affirm that on this day? My friend was disconcerted by the very question. She consistently teaches her child that no one is inherently bad. She professes her faith that all people are made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. And she preaches on a regular basis, just like I do, that no one is ever outside the redeeming power of God. And I still believe this is true. There are no bad people, but there are fearful people. And that is where I see similarities between fundamentalism and those who stormed the Capitol building this past Wednesday. I think they are both afraid, deeply afraid. One rioter, he said to a reporter, well, what are we supposed to do? What else are we supposed to do? No one will listen to us. No one will help us. Now, I want to be perfectly clear here. I have no interest in excusing what happened. It is completely and utterly inexcusable. But I do have some interest in understanding it as best I can, because understanding is a first step toward real and meaningful change. Now, even if they wouldn't name it or recognize it themselves, I suspect fear was in every footstep that breached democracy on Wednesday. And fear, you see, fear, it plays by its own rules and it sets its own boundaries and it has a nasty habit of dressing up in certainty and grabbing every street corner and loudspeaker it can and yelling at the top of its lungs so that it is the only thing we can hear. And fear also cares very little for the facts. Fear resides in our emotions and in our guts. It only makes matters worse when fear is poked and prodded and ultimately provoked by the president. 
And it is important to name this in our conversation as well. Commentators across both sides of the aisle have said it, and David Brooks put it plainly on Friday. This rampage reminded us that if black people had done this, the hallways would be red with their blood. We cannot and we should not avoid this truth. We live in a country designed by and for white people. And we, who are white, continue to have the upper hand. What we have seen in the past several months are perhaps small glimpses of a better and more equal day. But it has always been true that a great leveling means that the mighty will be lowered, just as the lowly are lifted up. Now that, by the way, is biblical. It's straight out of the Magnificat from the Gospel of Luke. And people have been so afraid of the Magnificat that various countries throughout history, including some as recent as the 1980s, have banned its public recitation, lest anyone get any wild ideas of what it might mean. It's biblical, but it is also frightening, at least for those with skin that is pale like mine because we are the ones who have the most to lose. But perhaps the most difficult for me to watch on Wednesday were the images of those rushing at the Capitol steps waving Jesus saves flags and those who were carrying Bibles and holding up Bible verses. As a person of faith, this pained me deeply because there is nothing of the way of Jesus and what transpired that day. Now again, I am not excusing it. The events of that day deserve to be denounced and renounced at every level. But I do believe that what we saw were the actions of people who are afraid. People who were told, hold tight. No matter what else you hear, no matter what else happens, hold tight to how things are right now, and it will all be okay. I do not believe there was anything of the way of Jesus in what transpired. I do believe, however, that Jesus would recognize the fear of the rioters, and I believe he would do for them what he does all throughout the Gospels, what he does for all of us, all the time. He would help them repent. He would come alongside them. He would come alongside us until even they and we could turn around and find another way. What we all need, all of us in our own ways, at one time or another, is the courage to find another way. The thing about fear of any and every sort is that it puts blinders on us. And when we are focused solely on the scary stuff, there is so much else that we miss. 
As I understand it, the biggest tragedy of a literal and fundamentalist interpretation of Genesis 1 is that it becomes ammunition for an argument rather than a proudly beautiful declaration of God's providence. Our creation story is not an explanation of how our atoms came into being. It is an explanation of how much God loves every atom of our being. And it would be a terrible shame to miss this. Because there was a time when chaos hovered before, when it covered the fullness of all that was. And it was from that chaos that God brought forth creation. God knew we would always need help to see, and so God said, let there be light. And it was so. God knew we would need a vast expanse and a settled rest. And so God said, let there be water and sky and land. And it was so. God knew that we would need growth and rejuvenation, sustenance and strength, and so God said, let there be plants and fruit and trees. And it was so. God knew we would need rhythms and routine, and so God said, let there be day and night, signs and seasons, and it was so. God knew we would need to be reminded that there is more to this life than just ourselves. And so God said, let there be living creatures of every kind, animals and cattle, fish and fowl, everything that creeps and crawls. And it was so. And then God said, let there be humanity. God has spoken creation out of chaos before. From the depths of nothing long ago, God brought forth our humanity. And our faith declares, and so we trust, that God can do it again. That God can bring forth our humanity from the very depths. That God can bring forth the best in us. That God can bring forth everything God ever intended from us and for us. That God can bring forth everything in us that is good and very good. God has done it before, and God will do it again even in the midst of our current tumult and turmoil. Beloved, you can have a literal and fundamentalist faith. You really can. And you can even have it here. But I hope for your sake that you will open yourself up to all that this story has to offer and encounter the true word of life that always finds a way. Life that unclenches our hands and paves wide the way to our hearts, making all of us, all of us, fearfully and wonderfully human, made in the image of a God who will never, ever let you go. And if you can remember that, at the very center of your being, you won't ever have to be afraid again. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen.